Seems to me like it's way too early in the service to be getting ready to preach. I just walked up the center aisle and just sang the processional hymn, and here we go. Well, we're going to continue with our study of Paul's letter to the Romans this evening, and I'll be reading from chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Please stand for the reading of the Word of God. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let us pray. As we attend now, O Lord, to this short passage of Scripture that we have just heard, May we indeed approach it in a spirit of fear and trembling, for in these things we have just heard, our only hope in life and death, for we have heard the very essence of the gospel that Paul promised to set forth in this epistle. Help us to grasp it tonight in a manner that previous to this time we have never fully understood, that we may get this doctrine not only in our heads but in our bloodstream, that the just may live by faith. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday evening, we came to the end of the severe indictment of the measure of our natural corruption when the Apostle Paul mounted a litany of citations from the Psalms and from the prophet Isaiah to declare that there's none righteous, no, not one, there's none who does good, that altogether we have gone out of the way and that there's none who seek after God. And then we came to the conclusion last week in verse 19 where Paul wrote, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, 
no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So before Paul gives us his exposition of the positive understanding of how it is that we are justified before God, he introduces now this doctrine of justification by telling us, in the first instance, how we're not justified, that no person will ever be justified by performing the works of the law. Now, what we're going to be looking at, dear friends, is this doctrine of justification by faith alone, which doctrine provoked the most serious controversy in the history of the Christian church, that controversy that culminated in the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century that focused on the material cause of the doctrine of justification. It was asking the simple question, how can an unjust person such as myself ever hope to stand before the just judgment of God? In a word, how are we saved? How are we justified? And this is a matter of eternal consideration. The Reformation was not a tempest in the teapot. It was not a question of theological shadow boxing, because what was at stake in that controversy, where many paid with their lives, was this doctrine central to the New Testament gospel of justification by faith alone. And yet in this day and age, there are few professing Christians who even can define the meaning of the term justification. Luther warned at the end of his life that unless the gospel were proclaimed clearly and persistently through the ages, that it would surely and, certain and soon fall once again into eclipse and people would begin once again to entertain the idea that they could be right with God on the basis of their good works. Luther, in insisting on the biblical doctrine, declared that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls, that if the church does not get this right, the church ceases to be an authentic church. If the church denies or obscures the doctrine of justification by faith alone, it is no longer a Christian body. Calvin added the sentiment to Luther's that the doctrine of justification was the hinge by which everything else turns. Earlier, J.I. Packer used another metaphor where he said that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the atlas that carries the whole of the Christian faith on its shoulders. If justification by faith alone stumbles, the whole Christian faith comes crashing 
to the ground. And so if you're not clear of what the word justification means and what the doctrine is all about, let me say this. It's time that you became clear on what this is. Now, again, let me begin. We began seven minutes ago. It's a little late to begin again. By saying further what justification does not mean. First of all, when we are justified in the sight of God, that act of justification is not an act of divine pardon. In justification, God does not pardon the sinner. When a governor or a president executes executive clemency and pardons a convicted criminal, that person is deemed to be guilty, but in spite of that guilt, the person in authority grants the mercy of giving a pardon and more or less forgiving him of his crime and setting him free. Now, certainly justification involves forgiveness, as I hope we will see at some point, but let's not confuse the act of divine justification with an act of pardon. In justification, what happens is that God makes a legal declaration, what we call a forensic declaration. If you watch trials on television or pay attention to shows like Numbers or CSI, you're aware that there are those involved who gather what is called forensic evidence, evidence that is used in trials, in criminal cases. And forensics has to do with judicial judgments or declaration. And so when we find it in the New Testament, what happens in the act of justification is God makes a judicial declaration about a person's status before His judgment. And what happens in justification, again, is not a pardon, but it is an act whereby God declares a person to be just. Again, justification is that act by which God judicially declares a person to be righteous in His sight. Now, both the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants in the 16th century agreed that in the final analysis, the act of justification is something that God does, and it is a declaration, and it is a judicial declaration. And even Rome, for those of you who have studied this in a theological manner, has its own view of forensic justification because they both sides agree that justification doesn't happen until God declares a person righteous. But the issue then and now is this. On what grounds does God make that declaration? Why would God look at you when he sees one who is dead in sin and trespasses, when he sees one who by nature does no good, 
does not seek after him, has no understanding of him. How could he, on what basis would he ever say from heaven, you are a just person, when manifestly you are not a just person? And the good news of the gospel is that God pronounces people just, astonishingly enough, while they are still sinners. Now, this was the the debate with Rome. Rome set forth their doctrine then and now that God will never declare a person just until that person actually, under the divine scrutiny, is found to be just. In the sixth session of the Council of Trent in the middle of the 16th century, which was at the heart of the Counter-Reformation, The Roman Catholic Church defined her doctrine of justification, which it has echoed through the centuries, even as recently as the New Catechism, in which it declared without equivocation that before God will ever declare a person to be just, righteousness must inhere within that person. The Latin is the word inherens. That is to say, when God looks at you, He's not going to say that you're just until when He looks at you, He sees that you really are just. Now, Rome says you can't be just without grace. You'll never become just without faith, and you'll never become just without the assistance of Christ. So you need faith, you need grace, and you need Jesus. And you need the righteousness of Christ infused or poured into your soul, and you must cooperate with that grace to such a degree that you will, in fact, become righteous. If you die with any impurity in your soul by which you lack complete righteousness, you will not go to heaven, but if no mortal sin is present in your life, you will go to purgatory, which is the place of purging. The point of the purging is to purge off the dross in this crucible of purgatory to make you completely pure. It may take three years. It may take three million years. But the object of purgatory is to get you so that you are in fact righteous, so that you can be admitted into God's heaven. Part of the reason for this belief that justification is rooted and grounded in an inherent righteousness in the sinner is based upon an unfortunate thing in church history that in the early centuries, when the Greek language passed away from the central attention of the church fathers and Latin became the dominant language that many scholars in the centuries of the first few centuries read only the Latin Bible, not the Greek, and they borrowed the Roman or Latin word for justification, which was, it's the word from which we get the English word justification, which was the Latin term justificare. And if you know your Latin, you know that the verb focare means to make or to shape or to do. 
And justus means righteousness or justice. And so justificare literally means to make righteous, which we believe is what happens in sanctification, not in justification. But the Greek word that we're dealing with here in the text is the word dikaio, dikaiosune, which does not mean to make righteous, but rather to declare righteous. So let me go back so that we don't miss the point. In the Roman view, God will never, ever, ever pronounce a person just or righteous until by the help of God's grace and by the help of Christ, that person actually becomes righteous. Now, if God were to judge you tonight, what would He find? Would He find sin in your life? Could He possibly rightly declare you just if all He considered was the righteousness that He found in your life today? Remember what the Apostle Paul said, by the works of the flesh, shall, or by the works of the law, shall no flesh be justified. Paul labors in this text that all have sinned and do sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's precisely why the ground for our justification cannot be found in us or any righteousness that is inherent in our souls. That's why what we need so desperately is what Luther called a justitium alienum, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves, a righteousness that, again, he said was extra nos outside of, apart from us. In simple terms, ladies and gentlemen, what that means is the only righteousness that would be sufficient for you to stand before the judgment of God would be the righteousness of Christ. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is only theological shorthand for the affirmation that justification is by Christ alone by His righteousness, which is received by faith. And so when Paul speaks here about justification, he's not talking about pardon, and he's not talking about God's declaration of what it is He finds in us and in our behavior. He's talking about something else altogether. Let me just Give one more historical background before we return to the text. One of the slogans that was formulated by Luther that was widely repeated in the 16th century was a little Latin phrase, and you may get sick of hearing Latin, but I commend a few of these phrases to you because one of the advantages of Latin is that we don't overuse it to the degree that it becomes uh, meaningless, and if you want to become precise and hang your hat on something to help you remember it, 
Sometimes these Latin phrases can serve in that capacity. And if you don't ever learn any other Latin phrase, as long as you're a Christian, learn this one, the one that Luther said, simul justus et peccator. Four words, simul justus et peccator. What does it mean? Simul is the root from which we get the word simultaneously. It means at the same time, just, just, justus, just or righteous, at the same time, righteous, at, you know what that is? It's the past tense of the verb to eat. My grandmother used to say, if you et your supper, Terry, I'm sorry to insult your intelligence by having to explain something like that to you. I mean, I know that's… Uh, <laughs> Remember Caesar when he was assassinated? He looked at his killer and said, et tu brute, then fall Caesar. That is, and you to Caesar. That simply is the word for and. So we have simul justus at the same time just and peccator, sinner. We say if somebody's without sin that they're impeccable. We use the term peccadillo to describe a little sin. But Luther's slogan was this, that the Christian is someone who is at the very same time righteous and a sinner. How can that be? Well, if that person is considered in and of themselves, again, if God would come and examine your life, He would discover very quickly that you're still a sinner, that I'm still a sinner. And yet at the very same time, while I am still a sinner, I am righteous in His sight by virtue of the transfer legally that God has made by assigning the righteousness of Jesus to me if I put my trust in Christ. So by virtue of this transfer or imputation of the righteousness of Christ to the believer, the believer is declared to be righteous, while in and of himself that person is still a sinner. That's the good news, is that you can be declared just by God while you're still a sinner. That's the heart of the gospel. I don't have to wait to become perfectly righteous before I'm acceptable to God. And this is the point now that the apostle is laboring in this section of the epistle when he says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. When we get to chapter 4, Paul is going to show that this doctrine of justification by faith alone is not a novelty. This isn't a new doctrine that Jesus announces with His incarnation or the Apostle Paul dreams up in His ministry. 
but that this doctrine of the gospel is one that is rooted and grounded in the testimony of the Old Testament. It is the whole point of the law that drives us to this one who possesses righteousness that we don't have, and it is in the teaching of the prophets. He will show us in chapter 4 that the same way that you and I are justified today on this side of the cross was how people in the Old Testament were justified, how Abraham was justified. And I don't want to get ahead to that illustration. I'll wait until it appears in the text. But the point that he's mentioning now by way of uh, giving us a heads up of what's to come is that now the righteousness of God is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all, on all who believe. And before I go on, let me just stop here. When we say that justification is by faith or through faith, we have to be careful that we don't misunderstand that. This does not mean that if you have faith, that faith is such a righteous thing, such a good response to the call of the gospel, that God looks at you and says, well, you have faith. There's your righteousness. You've made the right decision. You've responded to Christ. You've done the good thing. And your faith counts for your righteousness. And because you have faith, I will declare you righteous. To be justified by faith is not to be justified because you have faith in the sense that your faith now is the supreme work that makes you righteous. No, no, no. The language here of being justified by faith or through faith simply means this, that faith is the means by which we lay hold of Christ. It is the means by which the righteousness of Christ is bestowed upon us. Again, let me back up for some of the theological distinctions between the Roman Catholic Church then and now and the Protestant Reformation. Roman Catholic Church defined faith as important and indeed essential to justification. Faith is the foundation for justification. It's the root of justification and so on. And the inst- but the instrumental cause of justification, according to Rome, was the sacrament of baptism. Now, again, let me take a moment to do some explaining here. That idea of an instrumental cause is maybe not something that is part of your daily vocabulary. You may not talk about instrumental causes in normal conversation. Where does that come from? Well, to understand the significance of that language, we have to go back before Jesus. We have to go back to the philosopher Aristotle who examined different ways in which change is brought about. 
He said the word cause in and of itself is too general, too vague. We need to be more specific, if we're going to be scientific, in discerning various types of causes. And he used his famous illustration of a piece of sculpture. And he said that piece of sculpture starts out as a block of stone, has no beautiful shape to it or anything, it's just a block of stone. And how does that block of stone change into a gorgeous statue, such as would be created by Michelangelo? And Aristotle said, well, first of all, there's the material cause, the stuff out of which something is brought to pass. And he said the material cause in the case of the sculpture is the block of stone. And he said, and there's the formal cause. And the formal cause is the idea that the sculptor, the artist has before he creates his piece of art. And maybe a painter has a sketch or even just an idea in his head, and he follows that blueprint or that format in order to produce the sculpture. That's the formal cause. The efficient cause is the one who, whose work brings about the change. In the case of the sculpture, it's the sculptor who is the efficient cause, the one who makes the changes happen. The final cause is the purpose for which something is made, maybe to beautify an emperor's garden or something. But in all of those distinctions of causes, Aristotle spoke of the instrumental cause. Well, that's pretty simple. The instrumental cause is the means by which the sculptor shapes that stone into a beautiful statue. And the instruments that he uses are the chisel and the hammer. The instrumental cause of Rembrandt's paintings are his brushes. They're the instruments that he uses. It's not finger painting that's hanging in the Louvre or in the Rijksmuseum. He uses brushes. Those are the instruments, the means by which the change takes place. Now, for the Christian, Rome says the instrumental cause is baptism in the first instance and in the second instance the sacrament of penance, whereby if you lose your justification through mortal sin, you can have it restored through the sacrament of penance, which includes doing works of satis satisfaction. But it's the sacraments that Rome declared were the means by which a person is made righteous. Reformers said, no, the instrumental cause of our justification is not the sacrament, it's faith. Faith is the alone instrument by which you are linked to Christ and by which you receive His righteousness transferred to your account. That's why it's so important for us to understand what faith is 
and why we call people to faith, why the New Testament calls us to faith. It means that we place our trust in Christ and His righteousness. We don't trust our own righteousness because we don't have any. But when we trust Christ's righteousness in our behalf and embrace Him, then God transfers legally His righteousness to us. You see what happens in your salvation is a double transfer is involved. Christ dies for our salvation, but He also lives for our salvation. On the one hand, your sins, and you hear this every Good Friday, that your sins are transferred to Jesus. He dies on the cross for you because He bears our sins. Now, how does that happen? Does God reach down into your soul and grab a hunk of your sin out of your soul and then reaches over and places it on the back of Jesus? No. It's a legal transfer. God assigns your guilt to His Son. He transfers it from you to Christ. But that's only half the transaction. The other half is that He takes Christ's righteousness and assigns it to you when you believe. So that when God looks at me, if He would look at me in my nakedness, knowing that all of my righteousness is as filthy rags, I would perish. But He gives me the cloak of the righteousness of Jesus. This is that righteousness of God that Paul introduced in the first chapter of Romans, that righteousness not by which God Himself is righteous, but that righteousness that He makes available to all who put their trust in Christ. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know, if I were righteous inherently, it may be gracious to say that I'm justified because the only way I could have been righteous inherently was through the help of God, that I needed God's grace to make it possible for me to become righteous. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a grace that goes so much deeper than that. It's the grace by which God freely gives the gift of the righteousness of Christ to somebody who's a sinner, who's at the same time just and sinner. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Before I go on, let me go back to this word that is another, again, another word that's not uh, part of your daily conversation. It's the word propitiation. There was a storm of controversy when the RSV appeared in English, Revised Standard Version, because the words expiation and propitiation were removed from the English text because the basis was people in this day and age don't use words like that, and if people are going to understand the New Testament, we've got to get rid of these strange terms like propitiation and expi expiation. 
Don't ever get rid of the words uh, propitiation and expiation. I've talked to you about this in Sunday mornings and different times. These are two of the most glorious words that we find anywhere in the New Testament. What do they mean? Propitiation. Propitiation means to satisfy the demands of justice. And in terms of the biblical concept, it means to satisfy the demands of God's wrath, that God places sin and all evil under His judgment and decrees that He is going to pour out His wrath upon all sin. The New Testament, when it speaks of our salvation, says that what we are saved from is God. We're saved by God, from God, because what happens in justification is that we are saved from the wrath that is to come. The people today are not all that concerned about justification because they really don't believe that there's any wrath that is coming. That's why we spent that time earlier when Paul talked about the danger of storing up wrath against the day of wrath. But propitiation satisfies, completely satisfies, the demands of God's wrath and of His justice. And that's what the cross was all about, that in the cross, Christ as your substitute, as my substitute, took upon Himself the wrath that I deserve, that you deserve, to pay the penalty that was due for my guilt and yours, to satisfy the demands of God's justice, so that in His work of propitiation, Jesus is doing something that is what I call on a vertical level. He is doing something with respect to the Father, satisfying the justice of God for us. Expiation has to do directly with us. The prefix ex means away from or out of, and one of the benefits of justification is the remission of sin, and the remission of sin is when our sin is removed from us. It goes away. I just talked to one of my closest friends from high school tonight whose wife has been fighting cancer for several years, and I said, how old is she? And he said, she's in her fourth remission. That means at least for the time being, the cancer's gone away. It's been removed. You get a bill from the department store, you've bought something on your credit card, and the bill comes and asks you to remit payment. That means to send it in so that the money is transferred from your account to the vendor or the merchant. So when the New Testament speaks about expiation, it speaks about that sense in which Christ removes our sin from us, takes it away. We're told as far as the east is from the west, so far are our sins removed from us, so that in the work of Christ there is propitiation, there is expiation. Now, let me just stop. How many of you remember that I explained this to you before? Come on. Oh, good. And I gave you a way to remember it that you would never forget. 
How many of you remember it? <laughs> Didn't work, did it? <laughs> I reminded you that the building here in our sanctuary is in the form of a cross. It's called a cruciform. So that we have the center beam of the cross, the vertical beam, coming down the middle. If you would look at this sanctuary from an airplane, you would see that it's in the form of the cross. And the sidebars, the side cross pieces, are the various uh, transepts, this side and this side over here. And I said, every time you come into church on Sunday morning and you walk down that aisle, think of the vertical dimension of your justification, which is the propitiation, the satisfaction that Christ has done before the Father for you. That's the vertical bar. The horizontal bar of the cross represents your expiation, whereby Christ is not only satisfied the justice of the Father, but He's also removed your sins from you. That's why I don't want to lose these words. I'd rather take the time to explain them and learn them because they so richly capture the essence of the gospel that stands upon what Christ did on the cross in paying for our guilt and in His life of perfect obedience in earning that righteousness that He freely gives to us. God set forth Christ as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness. And here's one of my favorite texts in all of the Bible, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There is no such thing, dear friends, as cheap grace. Do not think that the gospel is simply an announcement of pardon. Do not think that in your justification, God just decides unilaterally to forgive you of your sins. That's the prevailing idea, that what happens in the gospel is that God just freely forgives you of sin because He's such a loving, dear, wonderful God that it doesn't disturb Him that in our sin we violate everything that is holy. Beloved, God never, ever negotiates His own righteousness. God will never lay aside His holiness to save you or anybody else. God demands and requires that sin be punished. That's why that object is the symbol, the universal symbol of Christianity, the cross. Christ had to die because the propitiation had to be made. Because God said, 
I will not negotiate my justice. Sin has to be punished. Your sin has to be punished. And so in the drama of justification, God remains just. He doesn't stop being just. He doesn't set aside His justice. He doesn't waive His righteousness. He insists upon His righteousness. You cannot be justified without righteousness. But the glory of His grace that He demonstrates along with His justice is that that justice is served vicariously by a substitute that He appoints. And so, by basing your justification on the righteousness of Christ, God's mercy is shown in that it's not your righteousness that saves you, it's somebody else's. You get in on somebody else's coattails. That's grace. But that somebody who is your Redeemer is perfectly righteous and has fulfilled the justice of God for you perfectly. That's the glory of justification, that in it God demonstrates that He is both just and the justifier. If He were only the justifier, by negotiating His righteousness, He would not be just. If all He did was maintain His own righteousness without extending the grace of the imputation of somebody else's righteousness to you, He would not be the justifier. But He is both just and the justifier. That's the marvel of the gospel. And here, Paul is just introducing it. He will be expanding on it and demonstrating it further from sacred Scripture as we continue to study the terms of what he teaches on justification. And we will be doing that in the weeks to come, not next week, because next Sunday evening is the, the music program, not the week after because that's Christmas and we're not having an evening service. But God willing, the week after that, we'll start a new year by coming back to the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone. Let's pray. Lord, if You would mark iniquities, who would stand? We know that we could not possibly stand on the basis of our own righteousness, but we thank You for the glorious gift that You have bestowed upon us freely in Christ, that You have given to us His righteousness when we put our trust in Him and Him alone. Help us, O oh Father, to despair of any hope of resting our case 
of any righteousness that inheres by us by grace or any other mean, but that we may look to Christ and to Christ alone for our righteousness. Amen.